0: Um, It's a strange moment in some respects to to be sitting here. I lived in this building for five years (laughs) until until the 1st of December, and then I caught the first plane out of here and haven't been back for three and a half months, so Uh, this is my first uh, visit to uh, my former locale, Um, and it's not in deep I'm pleased to say. Um, Well... Uh, I it's also a weird moment actually in in that I've spent the day trying to finish an article in which I am profoundly critical of just about everything about Georgia and I find myself sitting here about to deliver a presentation which essentially supports the Georgian position it's it's nice to be able to do do that on something I suppose but uh, it's a bit of a schizophrenic process um, I've got two purposes in this presentation. One is to explore the relationship between international norms on territorial integrity and national self-determination, and to the extent that sovereignty and non-intervention come in, they there too. And the second is to draw conclusions about the normative basis uh, of the August 2008 war in Georgia um, from a peace-building perspective, it's a rather uh, depressing case because we spent uh, about, uh, let me think, 1991 to 2008 building peace, and we got another round of uh, the old stuff. These two purposes don't necessarily sit very well with each other, so I hope you'll indulge me if they uh, occasionally stray off in different uh, directions. The subject of territorial integrity and national self-determination, which is really the core of what I want to talk about, um, is a pretty uh, relevant one these days, it seems to me. Uh, To go back to the beginning of the 1990s, which was when I was um, middle-aged, it began with the self-determination of the federal subjects of Yugoslavia and the Union Republics of the USSR, In the middle of the decade, Eritrea parted ways from Ethiopia. My home province of Quebec uh, in 1995 uh, held a referendum on secession from Canada, uh, which failed by less than 1% of the uh, vote. Um, Russia, at the same time, fought an inconclusive war against Chechnya. Uh, That war resulted from Chechnya's declaration of... uh, Independence from Russia. At the end of the decade, as you all know, um, NATO intervened in Kosovo to, uh, in, in Serbia to detach Kosovo. Um, the UN sanctioned the self-determination of East Timor. And in the same year, Russia resumed its war in Chechnya. This time, succeeding after many a number of years, to more or less restore central control over that uh, region. Fast forward to 2008, Georgia split into three, and the two breakaway states have been recognized by the Russian Federation and uh, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Nauru. Um, Nauru, by the way, has a large banking industry. Mm. Um, (laughs) And last week, of course, uh, Southern Sudan implemented its the current stage of its uh, quest for self-determination in a referendum to secede from Sudan Uh, that's not the only state let awaiting statehood in Africa if you take a look at Somalia for example, where two entities, Somaliland and Puntland exercise most of the attributes of effective sovereignty um, but without international recognition Now, it's the topic is not only interesting uh, to me in a sort of current eventsy way; uh, it's also active in academic discourse, particularly, I gather, among lawyers, um, which, uh, particularly, in respect of the principle of uh, the notion of remedial uh, secession—that is to say, the weakening of the principle (coughs) of territorial integrity on uh, humanitarian. Uh, grounds, so uh, all uh, by way of saying that this is not an obscure topic, it's a central topic to international relations. Now, I've had a latent interest in these subjects for some time, not least because I come from Quebec and I've spent 20 years studying civil conflict and peace building in the former Soviet Union, but the issue really caught my eye in 2008 because of the war in Georgia, the key normative aspect of that ongoing conflict uh, is exactly the tension between norms of territorial integrity, national self-determination, and uh, intervention. Now, you might ask in a forum such as this, why talk about this in a seminar on transitional justice. Leaving aside the obvious point that most of the really challenging civil conflicts of the last 20 years have involved efforts to secede by minority groups uh, within fragmented states, the fundamental normative claim underlying most of these conflicts is exactly about justice. It's a claim uh, rooted in a widely recognized right of national self-determination. Now, having mentioned lawyers... I like lawyers, by the way, Um, (laughs) but I am not a lawyer, Um, and this is fundamentally a presentation about norms in international relations. These, In in international normative theory, these are generally of two kinds, they overlap. Uh, Norms designed to foster stability and order in the system, such as, by and large, the principle of territorial integrity and non-intervention, and norms that concern Principles of justice, such as national self-determination. As for what norms are, Krasner put it uh, that they were standards of behavior defined in rights or and obligate in terms of rights and obligations. These may be embodied in hard law or soft law, or they may not. Um, as we shall see. In many cases, the political understanding of a norm is uh, far broader than or different from the legal uh, understanding, and these differences, I shall argue, can be important. Um, it, usually, when I talk about norms in an international relations group, I have to include a paragraph on why should one bother talking about norms, because it's all about power anyway. But I assume I can <laughs> pass that over in, in, in this group. Um, And finally, just to specify, uh, territorial integrity and national self-determination are uh, closely related, as suggested in the title, to a number of other concepts with normative uh, content, sovereignty, and intervention among them, and these come in at various stages. So what am I going to do in the... What do I have? About 40, 40, 45 minutes, whatever. Um... uh, Concerning structure, I intend to uh, begin with a discussion of the concept and the norm of territorial integrity. That's followed by a consideration of national self-determination. I then examine the relationship between the two uh, and how that is related to sovereignty and intervention. I do that with specific reference to the conflict in Georgia. I will draw in other examples as necessary. How many people have a copy of the UN Charter with them? My students always carry one. (laughs) Um, uh, Anyway, Article 1, Paragraph 2 of the Charter states that one of the central purposes of the United Nations is to develop friendly relations among nations based on respect for the equal rights and self determination of peoples. Article 2, Paragraph 4 states that all members uh, shall refrain in their international relations from the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity. Or political independence of any state. And these principles are repeated endlessly in numerous documents uh, uh, in international law. Um, the Helsinki Final Act is one, lots of other places, the definition of aggression in the, uh, adopted in 1974 by the General Assembly. But the problem here is obvious, it seems to me. Um, Enforcement of territorial integrity, according to Article 2, Paragraph 4, may deny the principle of equal rights and self-determination of peoples. That's Article 1, Paragraph 2. So, turning to uh, territorial integrity, what do we mean by it? Uh, Mark Zacher suggests that the territorial integrity norm reflects the growing acceptance that force should not be used to alter interstate boundaries the norm suggests that recognized sovereign states have the right to control the territory within their borders and that efforts by other states to change those borders by force are illegal. Now, there are two, at least two ways in which a state can challenge the territorial integrity of another by force. One is the forceful annexation of the territory. The other is the use of force to support secession. To my mind, the territorial integrity principle prohibits both types, uh, as does, by the way, the broader prohibition on the aggressive use of force in international relations. Forceful support of secession is also covered by the prohibition on intervention, which I'll get to in a while. Regarding the point I made earlier about the difference between political understandings and legal principles, um, in general usage... The principle of territorial integrity is taken to mean that board boundaries should not be changed except by consent. The legal element is that boundaries of one state should not be forcefully altered by another state. To my knowledge, there's nothing in international law that would hinder efforts by a minority within a state to separate from that state and to become independent. And that, I think, was recently affirmed in a rather curious uh, ICJ decision uh, on uh, on the request of the General Assembly concerning Kosovo. The court decided that the uh, adoption of the Declaration of Independence by Kosovo did not violate any applicable rule of international law, and I'm quoting. The norm of territorial integrity is, of course, reasonably recent. Historically, changes in boundaries and the transfer of territory through force were a normal and frequent phenomenon in the state system. The roots of the uh, principle of territorial integrity appear to lie largely in treaty agreements in Latin America after decolonization in the 19th century. These established, at least recently, the modern interpretation of the principle of utiposidetis de jure, which boils down to the idea that what states possess, they possess in law. So it is unlawful to take it away from them. And the Latin American experience was generalized in the League of Nations Covenant in 1919, uh, Article 10 of which states that the members of the League undertake to respect and preserve as against international aggression the territorial integrity and existing political independence of all members of the League. This notion was also reflected in later post-colonial arrangements, the founding of the OAU, for example, and uh, more pertinent to my uh, case, uh, the founding document of the Commonwealth of Independent States in the former Soviet Union, dating from 1991. Apologies for quoting here. The CIS charter declares, for the achievement of the Commonwealth's objectives... The member states shall, proceeding from universally recognized norms of international law and the Helsinki Final Act, organize their relationships in accordance with the following interconnected principles of equal value, one of which is inviolability of state borders, recognition of existing borders, rejection of unlawful territorial uh, acquisitions, and another is the territorial integrity of states and rejection of any actions aimed at dismembering another state's territory. This last bit, uh, the rejection of actions aimed at dismembering another state, is, of course, relevant to Russia's actions in Georgia. Uh, The invasion of 2008 specifically contradicts the commitment of the Russian Federation in the CIS Charter. Uh, For those of you who are aficionados, I would recall for you that Georgia, at the time the war began on the 7th of August, was a member of the CIS. It uh, uh, ceased to be a member of the CIS on the 12th of August. The link uh, to the stabilization of frontiers upon independence uh, is clear in the ICJ's ruling in uh, a case involving Burkina Faso and Mali, in 1986, where the court uh, asserted that uti possidetis is a general principle which is logically connected with the phenomenon of obtaining independence wherever it occurs. Its obvious purpose is to prevent the independence and stability of new states being engendered, uh, uh, endangered by fratricidal struggles provoked by the changing of frontiers following the withdrawal of the administering power. Before going on to national self-determination, I'd like to repeat and clarify one point. The legal principle of territorial integrity prohibits action by one state against another state with the purpose of changing territorial boundaries. It's a matter of law between states. It says nothing about the attempts of a people within a state to leave that state. That is, I suppose, all other things being equal, a domestic matter for the state in question. In short, the effort of the people, and I have to say, it it was sort of painful for me to accept this, uh, given where I come from. Um, The effort of a people to determine their own future through secession... um, does not violate the principle of territorial integrity as expressed in international law. However, in the evolution of international human rights norms and arguably law, there may be circumstances in which domestic jurisdiction can be overridden by international actors, as, for example, with uh, humanitarian intervention and remedial secession. I'll get back to that. Since we're talking more or less about national self-determination by now, let's go there. What is national self-determination? My colleague from downstairs, uh, Andrew Hurl, uh, notes that in one sense national self-determination is a political ideology, asserting that the nation can be distinguished from the state, that nations and states should be coextensive in their boundaries, that every nation should have a state corresponding to it, and that any state that does not express a nation or national idea is potentially illegitimate. He goes on to note that national self-determination can also be seen uh, uh, as uh, an international uh, political norm, conferring political and moral rights on national groups or on those speaking in their name, and which encourages and legitimizes demands for the redrawing of state boundaries. Now I agree with my good friend on the first part and I have problems with the second part. Uh, It's not obvious to me that the norm normally legitimizes uh, the redrawing of state boundaries. The prevailing legal position, recalling again the tension between political understandings and legal ones, the prevailing legal position appears to be the opposite. In this context, the redrawing of state boundaries is a last resort when other less extreme identity uh, uh, remedies have been denied. I'll get back to that one, too, in a minute. The history of the norm of national self-determination de- goes back a fair distance, I suppose, to John Locke explicitly and by inference all the way to Aristotle. In its Enlightenment version, it referred to the right of a people to rebel in circumstances where their government, their sovereign, was acting contrary to that people's interest. The U.S. Declaration of Independence is a good example of the claim that a people has a right to determine its own uh, future and therefore to rebel when their state is denying or significantly infringing upon their rights. And uh, you all know this quote. Uh, whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall be most likely to affect their safety and happiness. And that reasoning was used to justify the uh, American people's efforts or at least the efforts of those leading the American Revolution truth in advertising I note that my ancestors were United Empire loyalists (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway it was used to justify the American people's efforts to dissolve the political bonds connecting them with the larger state of which they had been a part now in its early form the right to national self-determination didn't have anything in particular to do with ethnicity That came with the rise of nationalism in the 19th century, which frequently associated peoplehood with distinctive culture, language, traditions, and so on. Now, again, there's a significant difference to me between the political norm and the legal principle. National self-determination in law appears to originate in the settlement of World War I the Entente and Associated Powers presided over the dismemberment of Austria-Hungary, the redrawing of the boundaries of Germany, and the creation of Poland and Czechoslovakia because of a belief that the self-determination of these Central European peoples was both right in itself and was a good thing instrumentally because it would contribute to the achievement of a stable peace. The covenant of the League... Um, I think I'm the only person in Oxford who deals with the covenant of the League of Nations, so you have to (laughs) indulge me again. Um, It it did not refer explicitly to a right of self-determination, which is not surprising. After all, the covenant was largely written by the victorious great powers. Two of the three possessed large colonial empires. For them, liberal principles were fine in principle, so to speak. (laughs) Um, or as applied to the possessions of the defeated powers. But they shouldn't be allowed to interfere with their own interests and possessions. The third, the United States came, as we've seen, out of an anti-colonial tradition, and its preferences were clearly stated in Wilson's uh, address to the U.S. Congress on war aims in January 1918, where he noted that an evident principle runs through Uh, the whole program I've outlined, it is the principle of justice to all peoples and nationalities and their right to live on equal terms of liberty and safety with one another, whether they be strong or weak. (coughs) So for him, it was about justice, and for the others, it appears to have been less so. Now, uh, in other words, the principle was not established generally in the covenant, but I do think that Article 22... Uh, of the Covenant is pertinent nonetheless, and uh, that article deals with the colonial or other possessions of the defeated powers. The preference of France and the United Kingdom in respective places like, uh, take, I don't know, Namibia, Tanzania, Tanganyika, and so on, was simply to divide up the spoils to absorb these bits into existing colonial structures. However, the United States in particular was not willing to accept that. The compromise was that those peoples, not uh, so-called, not ready for self-government, should be placed under the mandatory authority of other, presumably more effective states. And these mandatory states were to develop the peoples in question to a level where they would be capable of governing themselves. The point uh, was possession to lay the basis for self-determination, not possession for gain. By the end of World War II, as I think I mentioned a moment ago, legal recognition of the norm of self-determination emerged in the UN Charter. It was then repeated in the International Covenants on Civil and Political and Economics and Social social and Cultural Rights, and elsewhere in numerous regional covenants and charters. Self-determination uh, in uh, as applied in law, seems, however, to be a little bit different uh, and narrower. It focuses in particular on these circumstances of decolonization. The legal conversation has had less to do with the issue of minority peoples within existing states seeking to exercise the right to leave those states. And as already suggested, most substantial decolonization has been accompanied by agreement among successor states on each other's territorial integrity, and by implication their unwillingness to recognize subsequent secessions where they occurred by Africa comes to mind, um, and uh, Somaliland is a current case. This brings me to several questions on the norm of self-determination. One problem arises immediately in the question, who is a people? We could go on a long time here, Um, a lot of ink has been spilt, but I think it's safe to say there's no definitive answer. Ivor Jennings uh, suggested in 1956 with regard to this norm that on the surface it sounded reasonable, let the people decide. In fact, uh, he goes on, it was ridiculous because the people can't decide until someone decides who are the people. That's related to a second point, uh, the connection between a people and the territory it claims. The problem here is that uh, in addition to the people seeking to secede, let us say, or to determine themselves in some fashion, there may be other people present on the same territory. In fact, they might be members of the majority nationality of the state that the minority was attempting to get out of. In the extreme, the members of the majority nationality might also greatly outnumber the seceding minority in the territory in, que- in question, and they might not want to go. <coughs> so, in permitting the self-determination of the people seeking to secede, one might be plausibly be infringing the rights of the other people who lived in the territory in question, their right to self-determination by staying where they were. That's directly relevant to Georgia. In the 1989 Soviet census, about 18% of the population of Abkhazia was ethnically Abkhaz, and about 46% of the population of Abkhazia was ethnically Georgian. Most of these uh, Georgian residents were moved out by force. Uh, Ethnic cleansing is, uh, I'm told, an international crime. Uh, It is, uh, in In a context such as this, it's difficult to identify a generally accepted normative principle that would justify the exclusion of those who'd been thrown out from the determination of the status of the territory in which they had lived. Until they were thrown out. For this reason, the referenda on independence in Abkhazia are suspect because significant portions of the population of those ter- that territory was dis- disenfranchised. Since the referenda are suspect, so too are their declar- is the declaration of independence. Third, and assuming you could sort these other minor issues out. Um, the exercise of self-determination in law would not normally involve secession. That's related to my earlier uncertainty about Andrew Hurl's claim that national self-determination legitimizes demands for the redrawing of state boundaries. Now, I have to apologize for being Canadian here um, because there's a wonderful Canadian Supreme Court opinion on this subject from 1998. The court um, was asked uh, three uh, questions Uh, One was, uh, would a unilateral act of secession be consistent with Canadian constitutional law? The second is, is there a right uh, of unilateral secession in international law? And the third is, if there's a contradiction between the first two, which one is paramount? And the court uh, responded in respect of the right to effect secession unilaterally. uh, It is clear that international law does not specifically grant component parts of sovereign states the legal right to secede unilaterally from their parent state. A right to secession only arises under the principle of self-determination of people at international law, where a people is governed as part of a colonial empire, where a people is subject to alien subjugation, domination, or exploitation, and possibly where a people is denied any meaningful exercise of its right to self-determination within the state of which it forms a part. In other circumstances, people are expected to achieve self-determination within the framework of their existing state. A state whose government represents the whole of the people or peoples resident within its territory on a basis of equality and without discrimination and respects the principles of self-determination in its internal arrangements, is entitled to maintain its territorial integrity under international law and to have that territorial integrity recognized by other states. That is, uh, national self-determination through secession is exceptional and subject to rather narrow conditions secession would be remedial. A people might have the right to independent statehood as a consequence, I'm quoting again, of uh, human rights and other abuses they'd suffered within the confines of their original state. Now, the notion of remedial secession has been growing in influence over the past decade. For example, it appeared with some frequency in the written and oral pleadings of a number of states in the Kosovo case, before the ICJ. The court recognized these arguments, but it did not decide on that matter. Uh, Happily, it was able to say that this question lay outside uh, the matter it was adjudicating. Now, in the absence of conditions such as these, territorial integrity seems to take precedence, and that has implications for Georgia. In order to establish fully its argument on territorial integrity, Georgia would have to show that the peoples in secessionist regions were not subject to alien subjugation and had not been denied any meaningful exercise of their right to self-determination within the state of which they formed part. That is, uh, given Georgia's recent history, a steep but not impossible hill to climb. It's steep not least because the term alien is ambiguous in this sense. Are ethnic Georgians alien in Abkhazia or South Ossetia, or are the Ossets alien in Georgia? I mean, it's um, hard to say. And this is related to a fourth point. The decision of a people to separate from a state may or may not be defensible in its own right, but the decision affects others in the same state, outside the territory in question, or for that matter inside it. For example, those who own property in the affected area, or those whose livelihoods are associated with the affected area. As such, it is difficult, well, whether, whatever you think about secession per se, it's difficult to justify unilateral secession. And the Canadian court uh, decided in this matter, that in the case before them, the terms of secession would have to be negotiated and agreed. In other words, it would have to be consensual. Um, Now, uh, much as it pains me to admit it, Canadian Supreme Court decisions have no status, no formal international legal (laughs) status. (laughs) Um, Just think, (laughs) if they ran the whole place, how much better would it be? (laughs) Um, And it was fundamentally giving advice on a point of Canadian constitutional law, but the opinions of distinguished jurists are considered by many to be one source of international law as well. And it does seem to me that the underlying principle they were teasing out um, is generalizable. That is, uh, if a people decide to secede, it should not be unilateral, but should be negotiated and consent-based. Those left behind should accept the genuine and democratic expression of the will of those seeking to leave. Those trying to leave should accept that they need to take account of the interests of their co-citizens to the extent that they're leaving damages the interests of others in the common state. (coughs) Now, everything I've said so far on on self-determination has been about the rights of peoples within states. What about the policies and actions of neighboring states? And this gets me to the tangled problem of intervention. Um... To begin with a quick definition, to me intervention involves a forceful intrusion by one state into the affairs of another state in order to affect the authority structure of the target state. Uh, Intervention has been a chronic problem in uh, international relations throughout its history. Uh, I think I've spent about 15 years of my career looking at intervention specifically. It was a particularly troubling issue during the period of Reformation in Europe um, and the solution in the Peace of Westphalia was a reasonably unambiguous embrace of the contemporary notion of sovereignty and an associated embrace of the principle of non-intervention. John Vincent noted in this context that if a state has a right to sovereignty, This implies that other states have a duty to respect that right by, among other things, refraining from intervention in its domestic affairs. In the contemporary era, the non-intervention norm has been legally established in the UN Charter, Article 2.4, concerning the use of force by member states, and in Article 2.7, concerning the relationship between the powers of the United Nations and the domestic jurisdiction of states. The General Assembly considered the matter of intervention further and issued a declaration of intervention in 1965. The matter also arises in the Declaration on Friendly Relations in 1970. In both cases, by substantial majorities, the General Assembly prohibited intervention in the internal affairs of states. The USSR, by the way, supported both of these. and. Uh, uh, Russia is the legal successor to the USSR and has inherited its obligations. The classic uh, ICJ ruling on intervention was the uh, Corfu Channel case of 1949. Um, This is a rather uh, tangled and obscure story. I won't detain you with it. It was basically about Albania and the UK, exchanges of artillery fire, the laying of mines in waters uh, claimed by Albania, unilateral British use of force to clear the mines, etc., etc. The court, however, ruled unequivocally that uh, it uh, can only regard the alleged right of intervention as a manifestation of a policy of force such as, ha- such as has in the past given rise to most serious abuses, and such as cannot, whatever be the present defects in international organizations, find a place in international law, i.e., no right of intervention. The British, uh, being creative, um, made a further claim that they were acting, in this case, in self-help or self-protection. The court also rejected this argument saying that uh, between independent states, respect for territorial sovereignty is an essential foundation of international relations. Now, that is relevant to the Georgian case because some Russian official justification of their action in Georgia focuses on self-help and self-protection. The general point here is that both hard and soft law prohibit uh, intervention in the domestic affairs of other states. That would include intervention in domestic cons- disputes concerning efforts of people to secede from those states. So, um, if the effort to secede itself is not prohibited, outside intervention in support of such an effort uh, is prohibited. The specific point in respect of Georgia is that on the face of it, Russia invaded Georgia in support of two entities that wished to secede. Leaving aside whether the Abkhaz and Kosset de facto authorities were acting within their rights, the Russian action was plainly illegal. I suspect they knew this and they were sensitive to it. They consequently emphasized the exceptions to the general national self-determination rules because that in turn might have created an exception to the territorial integrity uh, rule. You recall the uh, Canadian court's discussion of the circumstances in which secession might be justified on self-determination grounds. Colonial rule, alien subjugation, the inability of a people to be able to exercise its right to self-determination within the framework of the existing state. Add on the newer notion that where a government is either unwilling to or incapable of protecting a group of people within a state, the international community may intervene in order to protect those people in place of the state. Here I would note uh, a couple UN Security Council resolutions of 1999 and 2000, the International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty, 2001 and the U.N. General Assembly Summit Outcome Document of 2005. So if you take that as background, uh, it's not at all surprising that we find the Russian Federation arguing that these cases in Georgia were exceptional in terms of standard norms of self de- on self-determination and that Russia intervened, uh, uh, recognizing its obligation to protect the defenseless and uh, uh, in particular to protect the Abkhaz and the Osats from genocide or from ethnic uh, cleansing. I can't resist noting that in in drawing these conclusions, it specifically contradicted the entire basis of its position on the responsibility to protect for the previous ten years or so, but hey, um, <laughs> politics is politics. <laughs> um... It's also a bit ironic because the same argument made by Russia would hold with a greater force if Georgia chose to intervene in Chechnya. Uh, the case of genocide would be far made far more easily there than it would be made in Georgia. Death and casualty figures for Chechnya are not available. In the case of Osets killed in the Georgian attack on South Ossetia in 2008, the total was 162 civilians. Um, By the way, 228 Georgian civilians were killed by Russian and associated forces, so this doesn't really smack of genocide. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. Um, In respect of uh, ethnic cleansing, moreover, on balance it is Georgians and not Abkhaz or Ossets who have been victimized, but it's not exclusively so. And, by the way, in respect of the removal of Georgians from secessionist territories, it has largely been the Russians, or forces associated with the Russians, who removed them. Anyway, uh, in addition, the notion that sovereign jurisdiction might be overridden on humanitarian and human rights grounds uh, does come with a number of conditions which are not fulfilled in the Georgian case. Very briefly, these comprise uh, right cause, There should be clear evidence of massive uh, human rights abuses, or clear evidence of the imminence of such abuses. In the Georgian case, there wasn't. Right authority. Normally, the authority to authorize action of this type rests with the Security Council. Where the Council finds finds it impossible to act, then some have argued that a multilateral decision at the regional level would have greater legitimacy than action by a single state to intervene in the domestic jurisdiction of another. There is no general acceptance that a single state or an ad hoc group of like-minded states can intervene without due authorization in the domestic jurisdiction of another state. That is what Russia did in Georgia. A third uh, condition is right motive. The humanitarian motive of such an intervention should predominate The Russian action fails on this count as well, I'm reminded uh, at the risk of uh, indelicacy of Mr. Putin's famous remark about Mr. Zarakashvili, that uh, when he got him he was going to hang him up by, well, we won't go there, (laughs) we'll wait. And finally, uh, right means, the, the force used should be proportional to the humanitarian objective. Uh, In terms of the limited humanitarian objectives on which Russia ostensibly based its action, their use of force was clearly disproportionate. If the issue was potential or actual human rights uh, abuses in South Ossetia, why did they reinforce Abkhazia? And why did their forces move outside of both enclaves, South Ossetia and Abkhazia, to attack military and civilian targets elsewhere in Georgia? Finally, whatever one thinks of uh, remedial secession as an idea, uh, it, to my knowledge, is not a settled matter of law, and that is because many states do not accept the principle. And I would cite in my defense on this, uh, in this case, the report of the Independent Fact-Finding Mission on the Conflict in Georgia of 2010. All other things being equal... Uh, Georgia's action in 2008 to reestablish its jurisdiction over a region within its recognized boundaries was within its rights as a sovereign state. Whether it was wise to do so is a different uh, question. I happen to think that it wasn't a particularly intelligent thing to do. The claim of the Abkhaz and the Ossets to be peoples, in the sense that this is usually meant in legal discussions on self determination, is probably justified. As peoples, they do have a right to self-determination. However, there is no general normative or legal right to, of peoples to secede from states. Maybe there should be, but there isn't, uh, to my knowledge. There are many different ways to exercise the right of self-determination. Secession is only one, and is generally considered to be a matter of last resort where stringent conditions are not met, the norm of territorial integrity takes precedence. There's nothing in international law uh, to stop a people from declaring independence, but that declaration has no obvious standing in international relations. (coughs) The Russian invasion of uh, Georgia, and I'm coming to the end here, Uh, The Russian invasion of Georgia was illegal insofar as we take as law ICJ decisions concerning the illegality of intervention and also charter provisions on the aggressive use of force, along with General Assembly declarations, clarifying the application of that prohibition to intervention specifically. Finally, uh, and it follows to my mind, that Abkhazia and South Ossetia remain and will remain part of Georgia unless and until Georgia itself consents to their departure, which, by the way, I think Georgia probably should do, or for that matter, unless international society recognizes the outcome of the war and the new states that arise from it. So, what do we? Uh, that so much for Russia and Georgia. What do we draw from this case with respect to the relationship between norms of territorial integrity, national self-determination, and intervention? First, despite the often encountered view that norms of territorial integrity and national self-determination are contradictory, they turn out to be less so than at first glance. The norm of territorial integrity focuses on relations between states and not relations between communities within states. It contains no prohibition concerning the efforts of minority peoples to secede. The right of national self-determination, meanwhile, contains no corresponding uh, duty on the part of states to permit secession since national self-determination can be affected in many ways short of statehood. Second, individual states have no right to intervene in the domestic jurisdiction of other states to support secession on the basis of a right of self-determination. It is true that the general prohibition of intervention is weakening in the context of humanitarian concerns and the responsibility to protect, and perhaps one day we might arrive at general acceptance of the principle of remedial secession. Uh, achieved by international action, a la uh, Kosovo. But we're far away from that point now. And anyway, uh, this evolution has no effect on the rights of single states to interfere unilaterally in the domestic affairs of their neighbors. Third, um, there is a clear distance between the rather fuzzy rendering of political norms and the rather more precise and limited rendering of the same concepts in legal conversations. Then fourth, uh, (coughs) and finally, the Russian action in Georgia, uh, like that of the U.S.-led coalition in Iraq, and arguably the NATO action regarding Kosovo, all suggest just how soft these normative constraints are. I... uh, tried desperately to avoid ending by quoting Thucydides, but I, I didn't actually find a way to do it. Um, norms do impose a degree of constraint on the behavior of states, but at the end of the day, uh, it remains the case, at least in terms of my case and similar ones just mentioned, uh, we, the weak accept what they must and the powerful do what they will. And then the powerful, go shopping for justifications. Thank you. Thank you very much, Neil.